Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Here's what's coming up on this edition. You'll be hearing from filmmaker Patrick Gentempo, who hosts a nine-part documentary called Christ Revealed, dealing with reliable evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Also, Jimmy DeYoung of Prophecy Today visited with me and discussed what the Bible prophesied concerning where Jesus the Messiah was to be born. Also, you'll meet a recording artist, songwriter, and worship leader who's been involved in theater and music. Melanie Penn leads worship at a large church in New York City and crafted a Christmas project, including songs about the Christmas story through the eyes of a number of different characters. Then, he was a member of the NFL's New Orleans Saints, who recovered an onside kick in the franchise's lone Super Bowl victory. Chris Reese is now a pastor, and he discussed with me some elements of his life, including how God has used that kick recovery to open doors for ministry. Then it's Tim Winter of the Parents Television Council with some analysis of Disney's acquisition of certain Fox entertainment properties, including the 21st Century Fox movie division. He highlights potential areas of concern for parents. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Patrick Gentempo is the co-founder and CEO of Revealed Films and the host of a nine-part documentary called Christ Revealed. Exploring evidence for the resurrection of Christ, it features a number of well-known Christian teachers, including apologetics experts. From a recent conversation, this is Patrick Gentempo. One of my partners, uh, Jeff Hayes, called me one morning. He said, hey, listen, I've got an idea for a project. He was in his garden. He said, um, you know, just give me a, a few minutes to explain why I think we need to do this project. And he said, I think we should do Christ Revealed. And I said, say no more. I'm in. Uh, I, I really want to work on something that's got some light and some inspiration as compared to the stuff we've been doing that I think is important work. But it, it, it's something that if you, if you stay in that work for too long, it can get you kind of depressed. So uh, we so we, we just from that moment on decided uh, that that we want to go ahead and, and, uh, and run with this project. And as I was contemplating it and trying to figure out what the core values for the project would be, what the uh, what the purpose would be. Uh, we, we distilled it down and said that the, you know, the subtitle for the project is going to be the history, the evidence, and the inspiration. So as much as we spend a good bit of time on the resurrection, uh, we were looking at the, at the total scope of the history of Jesus and then wanted to get into the evidence. You know, what evidence is there to support this historical record? And then how does this history and evidence translate into inspiration in the world and inspiration into individuals? people's lives. And uh, so, so that's how we, 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 we came up with that framework early on, and then we decided to go out and, and you know, do these interviews based on that framework. And then we realized we needed a, a, a really strong producer for this, and we, we hired David Brookwell, who produced the, the movie Soul Surfer, which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with. And a great movie, I think in many respects a faith-based movie. And, uh, and David, you know, has got a long history in, in Hollywood producing really good content. And, uh, we, and when we uh, approached him on this, we're, you know, it's kind of like he's done really big things. So, uh, but I feel that, you know, he's a, he's a Christian who believed in the project, who then decided that he would come in and produce this project for us. And, and we're really pleased with the results. We started in the apologetic community. Um, and I have to tell you that I, you know, I have a, a pretty deep background in philosophy. I've taught philosophy for a lot of years, and I was absolutely awed by the intellectual prowess of the people that we interviewed 
and how and one of the things we had a concern about and this was interesting was that everybody would be saying the same thing over and over but each person that we interviewed you know whether it be you know sean mcdowell jay warner wallace uh, uh, greg kokel uh uh um uh, Gary Habermas, uh, there, you know, we went, we really had a lot of very, very powerful thinkers who we interviewed and they were not redundant. They really had their own views. They focused in, in, in different areas, but they all came to the same conclusion as far as the evidence, you know, for Christ and the resurrection. And it was very, very compelling in the way that it was presented. Uh, so, uh, so you know, we started in the United States, mostly in the apologetic community, but I did, uh, I did interview also Randall Price, uh, you know, who was the archaeologist. He was the head archaeologist uh, at the Qumran, where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, and, uh, and, and some other people that were not maybe in the apologetic community, but were also people that, that uh, you know, were strong in the evidentiary side of, uh, of Christ. And then from there, we went to the Holy Land. We went to Jerusalem, and that was a life-changing trip for us with what we were able to uncover there. Patrick Gentempo here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website ChristRevealed.com. Recently, just before Christmas, I talked with Jimmy DeYoung of Prophecy Today. In our conversation, he discussed what the Bible prophesied concerning where Jesus the Messiah was to be born. From that conversation, some content from Jimmy DeYoung. It had been much easier for Mary, she was heavy with child, riding on the back of a donkey, uh, to go over to Bethlehem Zebulon uh, to give birth to the Messiah. But he would not have been the Messiah. No, it was not Bethlehem Zebulon. The Bible says, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, has to be Bethlehem Euphrates. That's an absolute. And that's just south of Jerusalem. Now, Mary and Joseph would then travel 97 miles, you know, Nazareth, if you don't know the geography, is right on the edge of the Jezreel Valley. They would cross that Jezreel Valley from the west to the east, come over to the Jordan Valley, make a southern turn, come down to the city of Jericho, the oldest city in the world. Boy, that would have been a neat place for the Messiah to be born. No, it would not, because he had to be born in Bethlehem, Euphrata. As they came 21 miles up an ingrate, about 2,700 feet above sea level, at sea levels where Jericho is, of course, he would come into Bethany, where his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus would have lived. That would have been a neat place. That's where he would stay when he came to Jerusalem. No, it would not have been a neat place, because if that had been the birthplace, it would have not been the Messiah. As he tops the Mount of Olives, across that Kidron Valley, you see the Temple Mount most sacred piece of real estate in all of Judaism. It's the original site of the Garden of Eden. It's the center of the world. It's the location where Jesus has said he is going to dwell among his people forever. That's where he'll rule and reign from. What a place to be born. Same place you're going to rule and reign. No, you could not have been born in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. Had to travel three and a half miles over to the shepherd's fields there in Bethlehem. I referred to Micah 5.2 probably the most known verse about the birth of Christ. Verse 2, chapter 5, Micah. But thou, Bethlehem, Euphrates, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto this world, who will be the ruler of Israel, whose goings forth have been from old and from everlasting. Well, that's an absolute. And Jesus Christ had to be born in Bethlehem, Euphrata, there in the shepherd's fields. 
Oh, by the way, that's where we usually stop when we go to Micah. If you've got Micah, go across the page to chapter 4 and verse 8 where it says this, And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughters of Judah, unto thee shall he come, even the first dominion, the kingdom, shall come to the daughters of Jerusalem. Daughters of Jerusalem, the citizens of Jerusalem. Tower of the flock, it's used twice in the Bible, and in the Hebrew it's known as Migdal Adar. Migdal, tower, Adar, flock. That's where Jacob, when he had just buried his wife Rachel, who had given birth to Benjamin, the twelfth of the twelve sons of Jacob of Israel, uh, he left from there in Bethlehem, Euphrates, where she gave birth and then died and was buried. And Jacob moved towards Jerusalem again, about a half a mile down the road. He came to Migdal Adar. Let me remind you, it says Tower of the Flock. There was a two-story stone tower on the edge of the fields, the shepherd's fields in Bethlehem. And by the way, those weren't little boys, teenage boys watching over those sheep. Those were men, priestly shepherds, who had qualified after 28 years of study to serve at the temple, and they were assigned to the shepherd's fields. Because those shepherd's fields, three and a half miles from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, were the location where they birthed all the new lambs that were going to grow up and then be sacrificed at the temple. They had to be pure, perfect, without spot. And so this two-story stone tower on the edge of those fields had dual purposes. First of all, the chief shepherd, the priestly shepherd who would serve over all the other shepherds, the priestly shepherds out there, would go up to the top floor and look out across the fields to make sure the sheep were all okay because they had to be without blemish, without spot, to be offered at the temple. What's key about this, remember King David, when he was a teenage boy, had to kill a bear and a lion out there in those fields. That's what they did in the top story. I've got to tell you, Bob, this is exciting. What they did in the Lori story is those priestly shepherds would bring an expectant mother lamb into the Lord's story of that big doll Adar, tower of the flock, and they would birth the newborn lambs. And as they did, they would reach back as they held the lamb against their breast. They would take a piece of swaddling clothes. They would wrap that lamb in swaddling clothes and lay him up in a manger. Jimmy DeYoung here on The Intersection. The Prophecy Today website is prophecytoday.com. Next, it's Melanie Penn, a recording artist, songwriter, and worship leader at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. In our recent conversation, she shared about her music and ministry background, as well as the concept of her album, Emmanuel, which is based on the points of view of a number of characters in the Christmas story. Now, here is Melanie Penn. It was a very gradual creative process that unfolded. So around this time last year, I unexpectedly wrote this song called Follow the Star, and I wrote the chorus first. And the chorus came out very naturally. It was like, could it be you're watching over me? I was like, huh, what is that about? And I continued to write the song, and I realized it was a song unfolding about the wise men who journeyed to Bethlehem, and they follow a star. And I ended up singing the song in New York City at a Christmas show, and it went over so well, and people really seemed to connect with it. And then a couple weeks later, I wrote a song that's also on the album. It's called Gift of Love, and it's from the perspective of um, the angels in the angel chorus who sing over the shepherds uh, as Jesus is born. And I was like, oh, 
I really liked writing that song too. And then I just, I have no explanation for it. I wrote a song from the perspective of Isaiah the prophet. And then I wrote a song from the perspective of one of the shepherds. And by the time I had gotten to the fourth song, I realized that I was in a full-fledged idea that I had to finish and see through to the end. I understand that one of the aspects that was impressed upon you was the fact that these were, well, normal people. And you really began to relate to that, as I understand. Yes. You know, I I believe that the Christmas story is true. And even, even as someone who is a Christian, and I believe that this is all absolutely true, but even I have been guilty of kind of letting Christmas go by me as a bunch of decorations and Christmas lights. And, you know, then January comes and Christmas is over. And it's like, I breeze past the fact that these are stories of our forefathers and for, for, I don't know, our brothers and sisters in the faith, like our first Christians. So writing these songs helped me, um, I think, rehumanize Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the innkeeper and who, who these people were. For some reason, God chose their lives to be a part of this story at that moment in history. And we don't know why, but he did. But, but they were people just like us. Well, there's a song that we're featuring from the project here on Faith Radio called Great Things. It actually is from the perspective of Mary. And I wanted you to share with us just a bit about what you really pulled out of her story and placed into the song. Yeah, well, that that song was really difficult for me to write. And I think it was most difficult because, you know, Mary is someone who is so iconic to us and yet also such a mystery. And you know, you go to Italy and painters have been painting Mary, you know, for for hundreds of years. And so to think of myself as another artist, you know, maybe I'm not a painter, but I'm a songwriter. So to think of something into her story as an artist, I got really intimidated, like, oh, my gosh, you know, she's so she's just too great for me to write about. And but then I realized, you know, she was a young, powerless girl she had no rights. She had no voice. She lived in a place and time where the establishment was never going to recognize her. She was also part of, a, of an oppressed minority people group, you know. And then an angel comes to her and says, and says I'm going to free people through you. You're who I'm going to use to bring redemption and, you know, freedom. And what an incredible countercultural narrative, not only for that time, but our time. And it helped me realize, like, why does, why does she sing? You have done great things for me. Because she had been empowered by God to play a significant role in all of human history. And I don't think a lot of young girls at that time were called upon to do anything. So I don't know the, who Mary is and her, her song, The Magnificat, which, again, has been placed to music for hundreds and hundreds of years, it just became so special to me. And I hope that people really resonate with the song, too. Melanie Penn here on The Intersection. Her website address is MelaniePennPennN.com. This is The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House, and the website address is MeetingHouseOnline.info, or you can go to FaithRadio.org and move over into the programming section. 
When you visit the Meeting House homepage, you will find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand through which you could listen to or download full conversations with recent guests on the Intersection podcast. Also through the homepage, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, each week. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can get connected to video content as well. Content from the Meeting House program and the Intersection podcast also can be found on the Faith Radio app. You can learn more by going to faithradio.org. Well, next on this edition of the Intersection podcast, it's Chris Reese. He and I had a chance to talk prior to the annual Fellowship of Christian Athletes Camellia Bowl prayer breakfast at which he was the keynote speaker. Chris was the member of the NFL's New Orleans Saints who recovered an onside kick in the franchise's lone Super Bowl victory. He's a pastor now, and he talked with me about some elements of his life, including how God has used that kick recovery to open doors for ministry. Here now is Chris Reese. Growing up, I was, uh, I would call myself quote unquote a Christian, uh, but didn't really know what that meant, didn't know what a relationship with Jesus was. It wasn't until I was 17 years old, um, had an, a radical experience with God that just changed my life. I went off to Georgia Tech, and that's where I met somebody named Derek Moore. And Derek Moore, he was our team chaplain at Georgia Tech. And really, I didn't have a father at the time. So he was, he became my father, my spiritual father. Taught me what it was like to be a man, to be a man of God, to be a husband, uh, to walk in faith. And uh, from there, God just moved. Uh, it was, it's truly amazing to see how God has moved in my life since then. Very interesting. As this, as the circle continues, it was just a year ago that I was standing not too far from where we are right now, talking with Derek Moore, who was the keynote speaker yeah. for the, for last year's prayer breakfast. Yeah, he's phenomenal, man of God, and just so much integrity, uh, so much class. Um, and just a passionate guy and I was blessed to be able to be the FCA president at Georgia Tech for four years under him and learned so much and just I love Derek he's awesome well that is uh, that is very cool and I think it really points out something that's important because when you look at your situation for instance you were looking for someone to or at least you needed someone to guide you you needed a father figure because you did not have a father in your life really does call to mind how there are so many young men who need older men, mentors to pour into their lives. And tell you what, FCA is, is an organization that can help facilitate that, isn't it? That's exactly right. And that's what they do. They're all about discipleship. Jesus was about discipleship. And I, I think, um, you know, we see the camps of FCA. We see all the big programs they do. But really what we don't see is the one-on-one times, those those foundational talks with, with student-athletes and with students and with kids, um, just talking about God, but really influencing their life, loving on them when no one else will love on them. And I think, um, you know, whether we like it or not, our, our earthly fathers are a reflection of our heavenly father. So if our father left us here on earth, we're going to think our, our father in heaven is going to leave us. And so I think we, we have that picture. So if somebody can come in like an FCA, like chaplains, and what FCA is doing and can really help um, kind of change a dynamic of, of how God is viewed in our lives and these students' lives, it can be transforming. As a special teams guy, there was a very special play. Coach calls an onside kick. Take us back to that moment. Oh, man. Uh, I remember in that locker room, Co- Coach Payton looks at us and says, hey, it's going to be an onside kick. We're going we're we're to run ambush. That's what we call it, ambush. And uh, I wasn't supposed to recover the ball. I, w- I was just supposed to be a backup guy. And uh, sure enough, 
we go out and run it and the ball comes just bouncing off his chest and uh i i lay on it and and try to hold on to it for they said 63 seconds until they actually called something so that was a it was a fight underneath that pile and and uh i was just glad i could do it for my team i had no idea it was going to be that big of a play no idea i just wanted to win the game and do my job and would would you say that that you know and i know there's probably a there's a bias here no doubt but would you say that's if not the biggest play in super bowl history is that universally accepted as maybe one of the biggest plays ever in Super Bowl history? Absolutely. I would say so. I mean, um, I don't see how you can discount that or discredit that, saying it's one of the big – it's definitely one of the gutsiest calls um, in Super Bowl history. So uh, I think every year I get calls around Super Bowl time, February, people calling me asking for interviews because there's always that one play in each Super Bowl that just changed the momentum of the whole game. And I was blessed to be a part of that game for, for the Saints. How has God used that play and, and your NFL career, I would say, to, uh, to open doors for yeah. you? It's been a platform. I, I can flash my ring, especially in Louisiana where I'm at right now. I can flash my ring, tell them about the play, and I can get into any school, into any secular side of things, <laughs> and it's just a platform. I tell people all the time, if you want my autograph, just come, come to church on Sunday. I'll give you all the, all the autographs you want. So it's really been a platform for me to utilize it for God, and it's just been amazing. That is awesome. So you are a pastor now. What, what, what would you say is the, the critical aspect of the message? We're talking actually before the breakfast, but what, what are you going to be sharing with the people, hundreds gathered here for the FCA prayer breakfast? Yeah, it's really to challenge their, their faith, um, to challenge if they even have faith. Uh, really, the, the goal for t- this morning um, would be that if they don't know Jesus, I want them to come know Jesus. I, I want them to have that radical life change that I had. I want them to know who the real Jesus is, not who the culture Jesus is. And I want them to see through my story that it's not about performing for God. It's just about receiving the gift of God. And I think that's what this holiday season, Christmas season is all about, receiving the gift that God gave us through his son, Jesus. Chris Reese here on The Intercept. Learn more through the website chrisreese.com. Finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Tim Witter, president of the Parents Television Council. In our recent conversation, he discussed the significance of Disney's acquisition of some of Fox's properties and its potential impact on families regarding the availability of certain content of concern to parents. Here now is Tim Winter. You have, uh, you know, two of the largest studio forces in in Hollywood history, basically combining and in, in coming into one under one roof under Disney's roof. Uh, the the few assets that are not going over to Disney, as you said, uh, the Fox News Channel, the Fox Sports Channel, uh, their broadcast network, and their TV stations are not going over. Okay. But Basically, everything else is going to be under the roof of, of Walt Disney Company. Uh, that means you have the film studio, the television production studio, all the different little, uh, some of the, the, the cable networks like FX and FXX. Um, you have um, a lot of the television production, uh, little, the little mini studios, if you will, that, that produce some of the more explicit, actually pornographic material. So you have, uh, you know, most of, of 20th Century Fox, now 21st Century Fox, uh, that is just going to be uh, all under the same, uh, the same roof as, uh, as, as, as what Walt, uh, Walt's namesake, Disney Company. Oh my goodness. And, of course, the Disney Company owns the ABC television network. Uh, of course, all of the, the Disney products, the Disney Channel and such, they produce their own films. They now own Pixar and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So already a formidable company. So 
and this may be an obvious answer here, but but explain with respect to the rationale for Disney bringing these other properties under their roof. What does this position them to do? Yeah, I mean, when you look at the rationale for the decision, it's 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 we think very toxic for children and for families. But from a business standpoint, I understand why they're doing the deal. Uh, this is very strategic for Disney to be uh, acquiring as much uh, production and as much content as they possibly can. What they want to do, and what you're seeing more and more in the news cycles, are these these alternate delivery forms of entertainment. It's not so much that uh, people turn on their cable or on their broadcast channel at night. They're actually now going to Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime, uh, Roku, uh, Apple TV. These are all formidable new companies that, that basically thrive by distributing uh, content to people so-called over the top, over the Internet, uh, to your television through the Internet, not through a cable or satellite box. So, so what Disney is doing is they are preparing for the future. They're going to try to create a behemoth of, a, of an organization that can go nose-to-nose, eyeball-to-eyeball with Netflix, with Amazon Prime. And uh, they will, this is a very aggressive move by them to get into this so-called over-the-top streaming uh, video uh, marketplace. It's never been a more difficult time to be a parent when you have sure. so many uh, so many areas of threats uh, when it comes to explicit content that's being marketed to children. It's never been more difficult from a parent standpoint. Just as you said, it's not just over the you know the, the TV with a knob on it that you have to get the youngest person in the family to go change the channel like we used to do back in the day. And it's not just you have uh, now cable like history in Fox News and in your in your uh, ESPN type type programming. When you, when you add in all these new distribution platforms, uh, it, they are unfettered, and they are numerous. And from a, from a parent standpoint, how do you protect your kids from the toxic material that seems to be coming to them from every direction, including now their, their cell phone, their video games, their computer? What, you know, most kids have to have their computer on to do their homework now. I mean, they are constantly being barraged by explicit material. Um, what what you know what we're seeing is is basically the whole migration, the continued migration of the entertainment industry away from what was just a theater to a theater to a television set and a radio, and then you know to the satellite with a satellite radio and then satellite television, cable television, now into internet de- delivered uh, material through your handheld devices and every possible device. I mean, even riding on an elevator in Los Angeles the other day, I had a little TV screen in front of me going up the, the elevator in the building. So, so the screen is becoming ubiquitous, and this really is a huge fight for who's going to own and control the content on that screen, who's going to who's going to sell the advertising, who's going to sell the subscriptions. So, from a you know from a pure business standpoint, this is I guess to be expected. It's the continued migration of an industry, but it, boy, from a parent's standpoint, it is uh, fraught with peril. You really have, we're going to do our very best to help. Uh, parents monitor and stay in front of this stuff. Tim Witter here on The Intersection. Learn more about the Parents Television Council by going to parentstv.org. Well, that just about wraps up the final Intersection podcast for 2017. You can learn more about The Intersection and The Meeting House by going to meetinghouseonline.info or visiting faithradio.org. There's information in the programming section. When you go there, you will find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand. You can also get subscribed to the Intersection podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. The Intersection podcast is also available through the Faith Radio app. 
Learn more when you visit faithradio.org. Also, when you go to the Meeting House homepage, you will find links to two blogs. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address, meetinghouseonline.info. Thank you for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.